Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. This is, of course, Carlo. And it's that time again. It's the time when the wheel turns and we have uh, at the other end of the wheel, Jeremy pops out. Hey, Jeremy, how you doing? Hey, Carlo. Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing okay. So uh, for those of you who uh, I guess got to this episode without listening to the other two where we talked about the Wheel of Time uh, Amazon series, uh, we are joined today by uh, Wheel of Time scholar, (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Greathouse, uh, also uh, novelist, um, Stabby Award uh, nominee. I forget. Did you you win an award? Oh, no. Did you win a Stabby Award? No, I did okay. not win it. Uh, I, I did not expect to win it, but I was very happy to be nominated. Um, yeah. So, that, so yeah, Stabby Award nominated fantasy author. I can call myself now. There you go. Well, I mean, you know, the 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 what is it? The uh, fifteen year reigning champion, Brandon Sanderson. Uh, <laughs> I mean, will you be starting a Kickstarter that earns uh, $15 million? Probably not first- this year. Not um, this year, okay. Yeah, that's part of the five-year plan, but we're not quite there yet. So, I mean, you, you might be able to fund it in five years if they gave you that much, <laughs> that much time. Yeah. You know, that, at least to that degree. Um, but anyway... Uh, <laughs> It, it seems like it's a it's a weird tangent, but then I realized no, Sanderson actually finished this uh, this series. He did. Uh, yep. He did. I I still you know um, as an aside, I remember a friend of mine mentioning that he uh, read the last book, uh, whatever the last battle or whatever it was called. Yeah. Um, uh, and memory of light. A memory. Memory of light. of light. Yes. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, that, that actually sounds like some sort of tech, uh, some sort of tech presentation that we're, we'll see in a few days or something. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but, but I was completely sort of intimidated by the fact that, uh, he's like, oh yeah, he, he wrote the last, like the last chapter or, or not, maybe the, not the last chapter, but the chapter with the actual last battle was 90,000 words. Like motherfucker, that is like an entire book inside <laughs> yeah. the book. What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah, man. I mean, uh, we, <laughs> I think, you know, Brandon Sanderson's finishing the books. I, most people are fairly satisfied by how good of a job he did. Um, there are some weird things like that, though, that, like, Jordan writes really long chapters, but I feel like usually they're not that long. Mm-hmm. Maybe he would have also written a 90,000-word chapter, but Brendan Sanderson is a guy who writes novels that are themselves as long as three novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that feels more of a Brandon Sanderson thing to me than a Robert Jordan thing to me. I liked the Brandon Sanderson Wheel of Time books, but they definitely do feel a little different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you this that as we've been, you know, reading, uh, yeah, like the Shadow of the Torture, it is totally refreshing to find oh, that each chapter is like five pages long. Sure, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in there. But it is five pages. You can yeah. get through a chapter like in in about ten minutes, and and still feel like, wow, okay, I got stuff to chew on. Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, Wolf is master of density. You know, getting a lot done with not a lot of words. I mean, uh, isn't that like the engineer's trick, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Work with how can I make this maximally efficient? There you go. Yeah, and and, and the th- I think that the 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 funny thing is, it doesn't feel like he's trying to do that. No. Uh, which is which is funny, right? Um, yeah, like I, I've read a lot of Wolf, and my sense of his prose is that it is meticulously like thought through, both for maximal use of words, but also for like depth of interpretability and like poetic potency. And he's just like very good at picking exactly the right words mm-hmm. just through yep. the entire book. It's not even like a sentence by sentence thing. It's like the entire novel. Yeah. Well, you know, Jeremy, let's, let's not uh, turn this into yet another uh, book of the <laughs> new episode, <laughs> given that we have an actual <laughs> right. mission statement here. We, yeah. we, you know what? I, I think we've talked about this before, but we can definitely have you um, come in and, and like do, I don't know, like when we finish uh, out the uh, shadow of the torture, maybe we can have you in uh, oh, that'd be and, cool. and do like a little rep- retrospective of the, the entire book or something. I don't know. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. It is the year of the new sun for us here at the pod side. So it, it, we, we could do anything. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> you can do anything you want. Yeah. Yeah. It, the, the, the new sun will come. It's fine. Right. Um, Anyway, so uh, so today we'll be talking about uh, the Amazon Wheel of Time show, uh, episodes five and six. I believe five was uh, was a title that um, sort of appealed to me. It sounded familiar, like something I'd written. <laughs> uh, blood calls blood. Uh, and mm. six was what? Uh, Flame of Tarvalon. Yeah. Have you um, considered suing Rafe Judkins for copyright infringement? <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I could do that and and sort of uh, go the Omegaverse route and look yeah. like a complete fool. Or, or what was the lady that was trying to, uh, what was she trying to copyright? Um, like putting out cease and desist because they were using like a phrase? I don't know, man. There have been quite a few of those. Yeah, uh, it's 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 almost too many to count. Yeah. Uh, at this point, it's really funny. Um, in in and in funny, I mean not funny at all, really. <laughs> <laughs> kind of upsetting and annoying, and like it's like abusive why are you of doing the legal this? system. <laughs> yeah, it, it's yeah. like oh, you have money to to throw away on lawyers. Okay, that's yeah. fine. Um. So yeah, so let let's I suppose get into um Blood Calls Blood, which uh if I'm remembering correctly, this uh basically starts off with the burial and the aftermath of the um the battle to you know between the uh Loghain, the false dragons forces and the uh, encampment of Aes Sedai and their warders and uh and and like basically Nynaeve and um, it's only Nynaeve there uh, at the moment, right? Yeah, it's just Nynaeve, Lan, and Moraine with a bunch of Aes Sedai. Right. Um, and uh, and so you start out with the with the uh, burial and the you know the, the solemn chant, looking over you know the it it felt like um 
like a weird uh contrast to the uh you remember that uh that's that shot that they did in um Game of Thrones where it was uh Daenerys at the center of a bunch of a bunch of black people, uh, brown people, I should say. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember and, that shot. Yeah, I, I think people took offense to that shot, and probably yeah. justifiably so. You know, yeah. it's just like, oh, okay. Uh, granted, I think it was intentional, uh, perhaps intentional in the sense that that was something that uh, Martin wanted there, because uh, mm-hmm. I think that that was the his intent all along. Uh, but I, I, I almost feel like um, at this point. Uh, Benioff and Weiss sort of stumbled across that that <laughs> image. It sort of like fell ass backward into that image and actually made it uh, more important than it should have than it could have been yeah. if they tried. I mean, like there was definitely no intentionality. I think in my in the show of that being problematic. It was just Daenerys <laughs> being worshipped by a bunch of people she had just saved. And it's just like a wildly uncomfortable thing to look at. (laughs) She's the savior. Right. So what if she's white? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Anyway, uh, going back. uh, So then it cuts to them. Like basically, uh, I forget. It it cuts back and forth a couple of times because it it also, um, it cuts back to uh, Perrin and Egwene um, sort of with the, um, the Tuathan. Yeah. Yeah. and and I I did actually like um yeah the the small detail where you know they they sort of did the thing that you you would hope uh you know the use of CGI would do more often which is like oh look there's the white tower we can see it through the trees you know because mm-hmm. it's so fucking big and we're close enough um. And, and that was an interesting detail because I think it, it they do that twice in this episode where you get the same, the same, sh- maybe not the same shot exactly, but the same feeling. You know, you get this view of uh, the White Tower, yeah, uh, through the trees or, or through the countryside. You know, in in context with the the countryside around it, and uh, sort of uh, it also gives you like an interesting visual cue to make you understand that everyone's sort of converging on this area. Yeah, I thought that was actually like really cleverly done because you get one from Perrin and Nguyen's perspective and then you get one from uh, Rand and Matt as they're mm-hmm. kind of like walking through the countryside and then I don't rem- and then you get one with Lan and Moraine and Nine of when they kind of show up at Tarvalon um, but all you get like the, the clear indication of how quite just like just quite how far away everybody is from where they're going. And um, it's nice. It's like I feel like the show needed to do something like that because this episode and the next one is when everybody kind of gets back together and they're foreshadowing like, oh, we're all heading to the same place now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it uh, a very clever sort of visual way to yeah. do that. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, and then we we cut. Uh, to the to Igwin and uh, Perrin among the the uh, Tuathan, and they get uh, basically waylaid by uh, once again Child Valda yeah. <laughs> shows up, um, and uh, as usual, just 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 destroying this scene. Really, he's just so <laughs> he's so good. I don't yeah, know, he man. He's even better in this episode than in his first appearance. This is the one where like, you know, when when he when he first kind of confronted them on the road, I was like, 
I like that actor. I'm excited to sort of see what he does with this character in my mind, imagining it like happening later. Because again, mm-hmm. Eamon Valda is not actually there uh, in the book at this point. It's a different character. But I think that they've what they're doing is they're consolidating a few White Cloak characters into Eamon Valda, um, which is probably a good decision because he ends up being one of the White Cloaks that matters the most. Mm-hmm. Uh but but yeah, but then like in this episode, I was totally sold on this actor. It's just like killing yeah, it as like, this psychopathic sort of self righteous. Uh, he's dude. Just so so unctuous and smooth, yeah. and just like charming, extremely charismatic. While he's oh. like cutting your skin off. <laughs> and uh, what is it, Abdul Salis? Um, yeah, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that the right way. Just carries it. He's just great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're right. Yeah. He's just like, you know, um, I'm just going to cut into him. And he basically presents them with a weird trolley problem situation. Yeah. Uh, you know, either you confess to, you know, he tells Egwene, you either confess to being an Aes Sedai and being able to channel, or I kill your friend and then I kill you. Yeah. Uh, well, it was, so it's like, it's it, he's not convinced that she's Aes Sedai, but he's pretty sure that she is. And so he's basically tells her, like, if you do channel, uh, I'll kill you and I'll let your friend go. If you don't channel, I'll torture your friend to death and then I'll let you go. And then he kind of like leaves them alone to decide which of the two of them is going to die, <laughs> 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 which is pretty wild. Like, uh, it's a good scene. It creates, it's, it does a good job of like making you feel a lot of tension. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it also, uh, it, it's also like the, like the perfect trap, right? Because yeah. it, it really does uh, feel like he's giving them a choice when it's, it's, it's essentially a trap. Like, it, you know, there's nothing to guarantee that he's going to really let the other person go anyway. So, right. Yeah. And it's, and it's the, but it's the kind of thing where like he is almost playing them against one another. Cause he probably knows like neither one probably wants the other one to die. Uh, they're going to like argue and get heated and then I'll come back in and then they'll be ready to break. Right. right. Um, and it's, Actually, it's great. Yeah, I, actually, I take that back. It's not necessarily a trolley problem more than a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, uh, that's that's more. Yeah, that's yeah. more what it is. Um, and, and really, they 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 end up. Uh, you know, I don't I don't remember if this is at all in the book, but but oh it, no, <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I figured I figured not. I mean, not even later on or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but I do like that it's sort of presented sort of realistically in the sense that, uh, yeah, they, they sort of even stumble across the right solution, which is neither one is yeah. going to really confess to anything. Yeah. Well, it uh, kind of does. She's, she distracts him by like doing some bad channeling while she's meanwhile, like she just throws a little puff of fire at him to kind of get his mm-hmm. attention. And then while he's looking at her, she uses uh, magic to burn off Perrin's bonds so he can kind of mm-hmm. like break free. And it's it's clever and good. And then he goes beast mode and stabs Eamon Valda. And then she stabs Eamon Valda in the neck. 
which right. presumably he survives. I'm, uh, I'm going to guess that yes, yes, yeah. he probably does survive that. Um, yeah. I did want to point out that you 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 actually mentioned something that made me think uh, precisely one thing that. I don't know how to feel about, uh, Perrin sort of being like the beast man, especially yeah. as a, as a, a big black dude. Uh, um, yeah. Not, that's not great. Um, I do have thoughts on that and his large, the larger way that the show is dealing with his whole wolf thing. Um, so like in the books, the, the wolf dreams that he has, the connection he has to wolves is very mystical, right? Like he has dreams of wolves. He can sort of telepathically communicate with them. Um, and he ha he is constantly afraid that the wolves are going to kind of take over his mind because he meets a guy. There's like a whole lot more with this in the first book. He meets this one dude who's like a successful wolf person who lives out in the woods and he helps him, uh, Ukraine and parents survive for a while. And then later, and then uh, they meet a guy who's in like a village who's being kept locked up in a shed because he's seeming to go crazy. And turns out he's also talking to wolves, but he's like lost his humanity somehow. And then um, they let him go. But uh, so Perrin's like worried about losing his humanity. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think again, kind of like with Perrin killing his wife, like we talked about, you know, in the first episode we made, um, I think this is the show's attempt to communicate something that goes on an internal monologue with Perrin that would be very hard to visually show by having him kind of like act all aggressive and like beast bestial mm -hmm. um, after he gets tortured. But yeah, like the optics of it are bad uh, because it's like the primary black character is the, the, the most sort of savage and bestial. Um, not a, not a good sort of, you know, look for the show. And also it just doesn't, I think it doesn't work as well because he doesn't in the books, he doesn't actually lose his humanity at all. He's just afraid of it because he's met somebody who that happened to. And now it seems like he's already starting to lose it. Um, I think it probably also has to do with like what they're doing with Matt, which we can talk about later where they're trying to create a mystery over around who the dragon reborn is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that they want like the, the audience doesn't know what the dragon reborn is really clearly. The characters don't. And so I think that they're trying to like bait and switch you a little bit with like, oh, Perrin's doing this weird thing where his eyes are glowing and he's getting all super strong. And uh, maybe that's because he's the dragon reborn. Yeah, yeah. We saw the spooky guy that appears in their dreams. You know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. I, don't, I don't know. I, it, it seems. Yeah. I think you're probably right in the sense that they're they're trying to develop this tension. Um for people who have not really read the books at all. Yeah. Uh, anyone who's read the books knows already that this is all sort of a feint. You know, it's not. Right. It, none of this mat it really matters in, in the sense that, in, in that sense, right? It's not yeah. really attention. No. Um, <clears throat> it's actually one of my least favorite things about the show. Um, mm -hmm. But we can maybe talk about that after we when we talk yeah. about the last two episodes, cause that's where I feel like it really like doesn't pay off in any way. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it feels like a lot of wasted effort and energy and time to try to create the bait and switch of like who the dragon reborn really is. Uh, when, you know, it was 
never really in question for even to people who hadn't read the books. I don't think anybody suspected it was anyone other than Rand. Like right. seriously. Oh, spoilers, I guess. Oh my God. Spoilers <laughs> for a series that's been out for 20 years. You probably, everyone's probably already like, if you've read a wiki once. Yeah. <laughs> you probably, if you've heard this. of the wheel of time beyond like a passing mention, you know that Rand is the track and reborn. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so then we cut to uh, actually Rand and Matt uh, sort of I, – I, they've already – like by the time they cut back to them, they've already reached Tarvalon and they're in like an inn or something. Yeah. Or they're, they're sort of walking through the streets. Um, they're walking through the streets. They stop at an inn and then they get a room. Uh, yeah. How did you – let me ask you this because I, I, I'm, I'm on – like uh, I'm of two minds about the the entire sort of Tarvalon, like all the streets, and it it yeah. feels like it's it's they're trying their best with the budget that they have, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it it also feels very sort of much very much like a set, right? Uh, yeah, no, I I agree with that. I think that it's it definitely feels like a bunch of. Well done interior sets, right? Like the different rooms and, and inns and stuff that they go to. Um, but then all the exteriors look, I don't think look very good. Um, and I think that they're, it cre- like I got this weird impression from the show that somehow Tarvalon was like all interconnected interior spaces. It's a labyrinth, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, but that's because it like very rarely shows the characters outside at all. Mm-hmm. Um and it's and I like that could I I'm very curious to know when the production started to encounter uh, problems because of COVID and needing to like ch- change their plans. I know mm. that that definitely happened for the last two episodes, um, but if it, I would not be surprised if they were already ha- like losing access to locations and stuff like that as early as filming episode five because it's so. It's so weird how like everything is interior shots, mm, um, yeah. except for like the first sequence with uh, the Twatha and meeting the um, the children of the light, and then Matt and Rand walking into Tarvalon or Tarvalon. Everything else basically is interiors, with like a few short exterior moments, which never have very many characters in them. Um, so it's, you know, oh, and I guess there's also like the parade when they bring Loghain into the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, like the characters are on a balcony. And then that's like, I think the last time Rand and Matt are outside for the entire episode until the very end when they leave the city. Yeah. And even I think that even when when you're talking about the procession, when they bring Loghain in, uh, even then it's ve- it's like these very tight shots. Mm-hmm. To sort of hide, probably hide the fact that there's only you know a handful of people, yeah, <laughs> really in in the entire shot, and to give the impression that it's you know a larger crowd. Um, yeah, I mean it's fine. I I, I get it, and I I'm not a, a huge stickler for like, um, I, I don't know that I need everything to be super like quote, realistic, mm-hmm. end quote. Uh, you know, it, there is a little bit of buy-in here. And, and I feel like they did a, a, a good enough job with the sets that they, were, that they had. It's just one of these things where you're like, oh, okay, you can sort of see the, 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 the seams a little bit. But, you know, it all, it's also one of these things where it, it's, 
it's almost charming in a way. And, and to your, <laughs> and to your point, like it, it, it also makes me wonder, you know, what constraints they had. I yeah. hadn't thought of, I, I like, I, I have to admit that I hadn't thought of COVID as a constraint um, while I was watching or rewatching these, but it, yeah, it definitely had to have been. Yeah. I mean, I know for a fact from like listening to interviews and stuff that it was for the last two episodes like the especially episode eight they were like scrambling to figure out what to do because they lost access to a bunch of locations and stuff um but like i i wouldn't be surprised if they were already having troubles with episode Mm -hmm. five um but i mean like you say i think that they do do a really good job with the sets they have like the the scenes in the white tower i think are cool the -hmm. set of the white tower like the sets in the white tower itself are great um, like the Amarillo seats sort of audience chamber or the hall of the tower or whatever it's called. I think it's the hall of the tower. Um, that's a really cool set. Uh, you know, just the random apartments and stuff in, in, uh, the white tower. Really cool. Um, but like the, the city of Tarvalon itself, I felt just a little underwhelmed by, um, mm-hmm. cause especially since, in the in the books, it's supposed to be this like amazing kind of fantastical city with like buildings that look like seashells and all this weird stuff, which I was never expecting like a one to one translation of that. Mm-hmm. But I I was hoping it would be a little bit more kind of grand and spectacular um, instead of just feeling like a kind of shiny medieval city. Well, I mean, it's also like, I think that uh, it, it looks even smaller because it's like on this weird um, island yeah. in the middle of a river. And it, it, I think that that doesn't necessarily help it. Um, yeah, it makes it feel a little bit more claustrophobic. Like claustrophobic. Also, if I'm not mistaken, like, yes, the, the center, it was it's supposed to be like, um, I guess like like France, right? Or like Paris, I should say. <laughs> Not Fr- all of France fits in an <laughs> island on the no, that yeah, don't listen I mean, to me, I, folks. I think that's uh, true. I think it's supposed to be like there's a city around the island or around like on either side of the lake, and then like Tarvalon, the heart of the city is on the island. Right. That's where the right, White Tower exactly. is. But but you don't get a lot of that mainly because uh I guess they 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 just needed to have some of those like they needed to probably not cgi everything you know yeah and they, they probably didn't want to build a bunch of sets in the woods out there or whatever right uh leading up to the 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 city itself and whatnot um but uh let's go back because i think they cut back after that uh to uh when the tuatha on uh with perrin and egwene uh meet up with the with child valda mm-hmm. and and basically i i did really like that scene yeah. um except for for the small detail right uh the the like so i i really enjoyed the fact that um they they really show their commitment to sort of a non-violent resistance mm-hmm. to you know an outsider coming into oh i want that person over there and it's like mm, no we're going to link arms here and you'll have to get through us and um and i did like that you know the 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 children of the light just just basically pound on them yeah uh, yeah just lots of punching Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just designed to really just make them break down and uh, you know, like either give up or get past them. Yeah. Uh I did find it a little tidy though that when um 
I forget the name of the 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 guy that uh, leads them away. Uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, but don't worry about it. Uh, they would not slaughter uh, the Tuatha An. They wouldn't go that far. He's like, mm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I don't know yeah. about that. That's that's Aram who or Aram or I don't remember how they said his name in the show, but yeah, I don't he's remember like, either. He's a a, a character who. Uh, shows up again later, like most of the characters in the Wheel of Time. <laughs> it's almost like it's a wheel, and you keep spinning, yeah. and then and the next thing shows up another character. Yeah, but yeah, mm. I, I mean, I liked that scene a lot too. I'm always a fan of uh, when you have the pacifist characters come up against like a violent enemy and then actually stick to pacifism because I think it's kind of a an overplayed and frankly like disingenuous trope to always have like the pacifists either be cowards or turn to violence as soon as they don't as soon as they're confronted with violence and i like how the tuathan were like extremely brave but also not willing to like do violence Mm -hmm. um that was good i liked that a lot i and then i also really liked the white cloak reaction to it which was very reminiscent of like you know police brutality in the real world of just Oh, you're going to stand in the line in front of us? We're just going to hit you until you go away. Yeah, um, pretty much. And yeah, so like, I like that scene a lot. Um, there's a lot of scenes in this episode I like. I think this this one is probably my the last episode I really vibed with, episode hmm. five. So. Yeah, I mean, um, I did, uh, you know, and then we cut back to uh, Loghain being sort of like uh, led through the 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 city streets or whatever yeah and he sees uh rand and specifically matt uh looking at him from like the balconies and he sees them and starts just laughing his ass off yeah uh, like a madman you know uh, um right <laughs> as he is yeah well you know he 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 was a little mad, and now they took away uh, every everything that gave him power, and so I guess that completely broke him a little bit. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I, I like that scene too. I mean, um, I think especially the little conversation Matt and Rand have there, where they're like, you know, hey, if it's one of us, like it, it's Matt who says, uh, if it's me who can channel, like, promise me you won't take take me to to the white tower like um don't let me end up like that right uh and i thought that was really good because in the books you know there's some question of like what are we going to do if one of us actually is the dragon reborn um but i think the show does a better job of capturing how terrifying it it would be for one of these guys to find out that he can channel Mm like it's in the books, but I think the show just d- does a better job. Like it, they're more subtle about it, and they get that across through like Barney Harris's performance in that scene really well, where he like he knows he's not feeling good, something's going on, uh, and he sees what's happening to Logan, and he's like, I don't want that to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I think that he's also feeling like the the presence uh, that the the Shadar Logoth yeah. uh, dagger is giving him and perhaps misattributing it to, Oh, I'm able to channel or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, but it also it like, uh, as, as we find out later in the same episode, it, it also makes sense as to why he would ask his, 
one of his besties to please don't let Moraine get her hands on me. <laughs> yeah. Um, in part because, you know, he, he's not sure what exactly he's got, but he doesn't want anyone taking it away from him. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because he, he's slowly becoming like a golem like creature, you know, sort of like slowly becoming super obsessed with, you know, the dagger and what yeah. he did and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a good point. I hadn't actually thought of how it could be both fear of, you know, being a man who can channel and also sort of a manifestation of the dagger, knowing that if an Aes Sedai gets a hold of Matt, they'll take the dagger away and the dagger doesn't want the dagger to get taken away. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it could go either way. And I, I feel like, um, like, uh, uh, Barney Harris is good enough to convey both. Mm-hmm. Um, to know, make it, it ambiguous. Yeah, yeah. I, I I really dig the way he has sort of embodied this character, you know, because mm-hmm. I, he, he, he turned Matt Calhoun into, instead of like this weird sort of shady roguelike character, it's a... a a full out dirtbag, you know. He's really, he's really a dirtbag character. I, I dig yeah. him a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely a little bit more of a of a scumbag. <laughs> right? Like in the in the books, he's a little bit. He's like kind of an impish sort of goofy guy, and in this, he's like, no, nah, I'll steal from dead guys. I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I stole this. I, I, I sort of uh, I kissed this girl in a corner and stole her bracelet. She hasn't found out yet. I'm going to sell yeah. it to you. Shh, quiet. Yeah, um, right. Uh, <laughs> so um, let, let's back up a second because I we we probably missed uh, Forest for the Trees here because the sort of one of the pivotal um, sort of movers in this episode is um, – Shit! What is her name? Oh uh, yeah, Siwan Sanche, the Amber. No, that no, that's the second. That's episode that's, six. that's just right, the next right, one. Right. Um, you're you're a uh, little Karine or uh, Karine or Karine. I'm not Karine. The, I think it is the 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 uh, green the green eyes to die who died as yeah, a result yeah, of Karine. Yeah. So um, and her warder step in the guy with the double axes who like is this is sort of roguish cool guy in the previous episode is just shattered. Yeah. He's just an, just a husk. Uh, and he is honestly like for the little bit of screen time, um, he gets, uh, and I'm gonna fuck up his, uh, name cause I'm looking for him. Uh, in any case, uh, Peter friend, Frenzen, um, he uh, is the actor that plays Steppen, and he really, for the little bit of time that he gets, I think he conveys what he needs to rather yeah. well. Yeah. Like, he, he really looks just like, he looks like dog shit that's dried up on the road, you know? <laughs> he really does. And it's a great contrast to the previous couple of episodes he was in, or I guess episode four is the only other one he was in. Um, when like they're hanging out in the warder camp and he's kind of like joking around and, and, uh, stuff with Nynaeve. And then in this one, he's like the opposite. He's just mm-hmm. like you said, like a sh- destroyed, shattered kind of man. Um, who's just like very obviously lost the will to live even without he needing to say anything, just the way mm-hmm. he like carries himself and his, the way his face looks, you can tell like there's nothing in there anymore. Like he doesn't, 
He's ready yeah. to die. I mean, it, it also really, I think it really drives home uh, something that is, is intangible, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To us as a viewer, um, which is the, the actual bond that a warder has with their Aes Sedai. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's something Which, that's like real important to get across if they actually stick to some stuff that happens in the book. Cause like bonds between warders and Aes Sedai and the breaking of them play pivotal roles in, in certain moments later on in the series. Hmm. Uh, like with Land's story and then um, even Rand's story involves that to a certain extent. So like I was really, I, it, it's another one of those things that were like, I'm really impressed by the way they did that with Steppen and that performance and the way that it was like, written so that you as the audience understood what was happening without them needing to tell you mm-hmm. uh, versus again, the stuff with Perrin where it feels like they're finding the most blunt instrument ways possible to try to get across like his internal conflict stuff. And like granted, I don't, I think the stuff with Perrin is a little harder to get across uh, just with a performance, but it's still like makes me annoyed that they didn't find a better way to, 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 to do his like, reluctance towards violence stuff you know yeah yeah i got yeah it makes perfect sense i mean the 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 uh i i i'm you know as you can imagine i was taken aback by that and re-watching it here i was just like i mean i I was prepared for it but also like wow yeah that still doesn't look good no still not a good (laughs) look folks um yeah so um going back to stepping um I, I really like. I really enjoyed his. I mean, enjoyed is perhaps. <laughs> it's probably pro- probably saying. Uh, <laughs> sounds like I'm a sadist or something. Yeah. Um. I, I really appreciated his his performance here, and mm-hmm. it really sort of you know it it sort of. I feel like it's it drives home. Not only like I, I'd mentioned the the bond between a warder and and their Aes Sedai that if I'm remembering correctly and correct me if I'm wrong in the books it it's basically like it's it's stronger than even like being married like if yeah. if a warder marries you know basically it's it's doomed you know it's a, it's a doomed marriage because you can't serve you know your your wife and your Aes Sedai. Uh, yeah. Or your your spouse and your eyes to die to to make it a little bit more you know, uh, yeah. It's like it's like a magical bond that even gives them some access to each other's like sensory experience and and stuff like that. So like they can tell what each other's feeling. Um, they can tell like warders can tell when their eyes to die are in danger, and they have like a a supernatural need to like protect them as part of the bond. And so in the books, uh, when a it's pretty explicitly ex- like explained that if an Aes Sedai dies, uh, her warder basically goes on a death wish quest to get revenge. Um, and that's the only like, because that's kind of like the consequence of the bond. If the Aes Sedai dies, the last impulse that the order gets or the warder gets from the Aes Sedai is dying. Like the last sort of magical sense experience drives him insane and sends him on a revenge quest. Um, so they played it a little differently in the show, but I think it's more interesting in the show uh, where like Stepan's not he's he does he's not driven crazy by it or he's not like made hyper violent uh, uh, in the way that they talk about it in the books. 
um, he's just like destroyed. It's like mm. imagine everyone you ever loved dying, and that's at sort the of same time, at yeah. the same time, and that's like what he's going through. Yeah. So uh, he he you know he sort of mopes about. He drinks way too much. Yeah. Um, Land comes in to check in on him, and he's like, you know, he's like, I'm fine. You know, it, it, it it's it's bad, but. I'll I'll get through it and sort of reassures him. And then he goes over to um there's this great scene because I, I, I'm on the fence about this because I I kept on like thinking back and forth. And it's I think it's fine. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but I was like thinking like, you know, he he approaches Ninaev for like a oh, do you still have that X I forget the goat's tongue yeah, goat's, or whatever. Goat's tongue, sleeping uh, tea, tea. Tea for sleeping or whatever. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'm having trouble. And I kept on thinking like, I mean, Dineev is nobody's fool. Would she have never, you know, run, run up against somebody that has, you know, perhaps used this tea for, for, you know, <laughs> perhaps not so great, you know, not so, uh, you know, ethical purposes or whatever. Yeah. But at the same time, like, I don't know. It, it, I think it's fine because she's also out of her element. Uh, so she is also like, uh, she's, she's sort of worried about the guy. Uh, so, you know, she probably like from, from my point of view, like, even though that might be like a weird, uh, detail that I thought about, uh, I also go like, well, you know, she feels for the guy. She's out of her element. She doesn't know how things work. It's fine. And she yeah. gives him the tea and she doesn't think twice about it. I uh, think like, I think you're right. And I think the show does a pretty good job of from the beginning of the episode, setting up like how much Nynaeve is worried about Stepan and sympathizing with him. And, and also, um, Something that I think the show didn't develop as well as it could have, but does develop somewhat in this episode is like uh, how obsessed Nynaeve is with fixing stuff and with like helping people who are sick. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's like it's believable to me that she would see that he was suffering and know that she could do something to help and want to do the things she can do to help, even though. Like she might not even think about what he might do with it wrong because that's not where her brain is at. She's like, I'll just give him enough to help him go to sleep and he'll just drink it and go to sleep. Um, well, I yeah. think, I mean, and maybe I'm reading perhaps a little bit too much into this and correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, now that I think about it, you point out something that's really interesting because it, it sort of um, gives us a glimpse into a, an underlying psychological thing with Nineveh yeah. that sort of, uh, she's a control freak, right? She wants to yeah. control things in a certain she is way. Absolute, that's her like primary character trait. <laughs> and, and also that same control is what blocks her from being able to channel, even though she's like the most powerful, <laughs> the, the most powerful, uh, potential Aes Sedai anyone's ever seen, you know, yeah. in, generations you know yeah yeah like her so in in the books it's pretty like that it, it, get, it ends up being that her block is all about how she is unable to sort of uh give up control to the one power to in order to like get access to it um and the only time she's able to do it is when she's so angry that like she herself loses control um 
so yeah, like her her need for control is is baked into her character at a very fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and that it, it sort of expresses itself in ways that we're we're, we're talking about right now, where yeah, some of it looks perfectly fine, but really it, it's a weird obsession on trying to fix everyone around yeah. her, and 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 of course it gives her like these blind spots, like what we're talking about. Yeah, like I like think she would. She wouldn't she would, think that that uh, Stepan is going to use this for less than you know, or, or he's not going to use it for himself. Which is you know, hint hint, he is not interested in using it on himself. He is interested in actually using it on someone who's going to watch over him to make mm-hmm. sure that he's he's fine. He's fine. Yeah, and I and I th- I think that her, she in her it, it's it feels like in her mind what's going on is there's a problem i know the solution i solve the problem right and she's not really thinking more broadly about the uh what what stefan's motivations might be or whatever um and that's i think in in character for for the, her she's not supposed to be super crafty like uh Egwene is supposed to be like the smart one in a in a way where she's the one who like and and again, this episode does a good job of showing that where she outsmarts Valda with, you know, distracting him with some magic and then burning Perrin's bonds. Nynaeve, in contrast, is supposed to be very straightforward and and like constantly sort of underestimating people because she thinks she can control them or that she she thinks they'll do what she says and then getting mm-hmm. frustrated when they don't. And so I think that, that it was like I get we I get the sort of question of like, wouldn't she maybe wonder uh what he's planning on doing with this stuff but on the other hand i think that it's all like the show seems to be aware of the fact that she screwed up and seems to have her react to having screwed up by the end of the episode mm-hmm. um and so i think that that's i think they did a good job with it yeah so let, let's get to the end of the episode because honestly i felt like that was a very like honestly it's it's I'm not going to like say it's the the most emotional punch that I've ever seen mm-hmm. but it 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 I think it's really effective it's moving it's yeah. it's it's a weird like it I was laughing a little early, uh, uh, a little earlier when I was rewatching it because it made me remember the the line from from the movie Conan the Barbarian where he's like uh, I cry because he cannot and that's exactly l- what Lan does <laughs> because none of the other warders you know they're all dressed in white it's this amazing like very sort of almost a spectacle of ritual right yeah um but no one seems to be emotional about it like everyone else other than lan <laughs> and maybe moraine because she's sort of simple like she's feeling what lan is feeling um mm. seem to be acting emotional you yeah know, it's weird it is and weird um but it, but it's like really effective because it it just also i think it drives home how stoic a lot of the warders are yeah and so that's kind of my read on the scene is um, the well, so to just, you know, for for some context, I think that in the books more than in the show, they really emphasize how stoic Aes Sedai are and also how stoic warders are where like uh, Aes Sedai are very good at saying placid faced and being calm and like not not showing what they're feeling. Um, well, and if- 
if I'm remembering, they, they even have like a weird, uh, not even really a channel. Like it's not even really yeah, a magical thing. They, they don't even sweat. Yeah. Yeah. They just sort of have a, a the mental fortitude to resist the, uh, <laughs> hormonal impulse that causes sweating, um, somehow. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, Aes Sedai and Warders are very, very like emotionless and that's hammered into, hammered over and over again in the books. Um, and so I think that what the show is trying to get across is that idea of like, even at this really dramatic kind of sad moment, um, this community of people is a bunch of stoics. They're a bunch of people who don't wear their hearts on their sleeves, really. And I think like you're right that it's Moraine and Lan, but also Nynaeve has a very kind of emotional expression on her face and cries a little bit. Um where nobody else really is. Cause like, again, I think that's supposed to be kind of in contrast to the Aes Sedai and the warders where she's a little bit more human. She's not quite, you know, like them, but I thought it was cool how Lan almost functions as like a scapegoat kind of wet thing mm-hmm. or like a, like a designated mourner. Yes. Where yes. like, like the whole community is feeling this, but they don't, you know, as as part of their culture, they don't show emotion. Yeah, like land becomes the focal point. Yeah, um, it, it, I mean, it also is coincidentally he's the person who was supposed to be watching over him that evening, right? And f- and finds him basically. Uh, he, he committed like uh, the <laughs> the warder version of seppuku or whatever. Yeah, he stabbed himself. Um, and so it's but like so like it makes sense land probably feels the worst so he gets to be the one who actually shows emotion and then but he's kind of like weeping for everybody mm-hmm. um and that i thought was part of why it felt so powerful and was because one like the performance of it is really good mm-hmm. uh like we've said before daniel henny is great as land um and he's great in this scene kind of sh- you know he's been great as like stoic Lan, and now he's really great as Lan cracking and showing emotion. Um, so yeah, there is that. It was also just you know, I think it was very well shot and composed, and like like as a scene in terms of music, in terms of like everything, it was just a really well done moment. Um, which made me confused why after the episode came out, there were people on like Twitter who were angry about how this episode felt like not like they were like nothing happened in that episode with like w- they spent the whole episode on this one character who's not even in the books who like kills himself like what was the point of all that and meanwhile i'm sitting there like but that this is like one of the best things that's happened in the show so far like i have other concerns about this episode that make it not my favorite episode jeremy but- i i know that audio like podcasting is not the medium for me to tell you how i'm looking like for yeah. you, you to see my face but i am i am really confused right now like yeah. if you could see me I, I'm, I'm just like honestly it, it's like dog hearing a, a, a someone whistling you know i'm just like uh-huh. sitting here like what are you talk what are these people talking about i know it's it but there were like multiple people who were like complaining about the ep because they were like why they their complaint was the show only has eight episodes there's so much of like the story of book one that they haven't told yet uh why did they spend so much time um with three episodes left on this side story thing. And it was like, 
Yeah, I, okay, there's a lot of the book left to tell. And I think the, sh- the, seri- the, the season as a whole does suffer for being eight episodes, particularly in the last two episodes. But this mm-hmm. episode was good. Like, yes, it's I, I, yeah. I agree. I mean, honestly, I think this may be one of the strongest ones in the entire run. Uh, I, yeah, I think the, the Lan Moraine 90 of stuff peaks in this episode for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that my, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's for me, it's either like episode four or episode five is, is probably my favorite yeah. in the whole series. All right. So we should probably move on given that <laughs> we are already an hour in uh, almost an hour in and we yeah. have not touched episode six. Uh, we should probably move on to episode six that, uh, opens with, uh, a, Basically, uh, a little girl and her father, like, uh, fishing. like fishing. Yeah, they get getting yeah. ready to go fish, and they live in yeah. a little shack by a river. And uh, yeah, she's you know they're they're both black or brown, uh, as the case may be, and they yeah. live on the river. And her dad is missing a hand, and he's having a hell of a time trying to un un like untangle his nets and you see her sort of gesture and do the, you know, the, the, the channel bending uh, <laughs> thing. And yeah. And she unties the knots and, you know, I, you know, this is one of those things that I, I, I had to make the leap. Um, I, I sort of didn't make it completely. I was forced to make it uh, because they're in the middle of nowhere. Mm hmm. And uh, like they make a big show of like, well, you know, no one did, you know, no one saw you, and you know, and and so okay, you you get the idea that the you know if you're young and you might channel in certain areas, that's not a great thing. People might think that you're you know you're a witch or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but there's nobody there. Yeah. And they come back and like the shacks burned down. Like, <laughs> how did this happen without them seeing? They're, they're like 20 feet away. What are you talking about? Yeah. So my my uh my sort of generous interpretation of that scene is that this isn't the first time she's done something like this. And so somebody in town maybe saw her, you know, do something with magic uh before, or maybe rumors have gotten going about her. And and so it's just coincidental that that very day when he's like, don't you better hope nobody ever sees you do that. Uh, they come home and find that their house has been burned down. Um, yeah. Cause there's I mean, no, I, other, no, no other, no yeah, other way it makes I, any sense. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and like they had, they, they like used their wood burning kit to burn in like a, a yin yang eye Sedai symbol. Yeah, the, 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 the dragon door, like, fang, the, the male symbol for the, yeah, that was kind of dumb. Like it's sort of silly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's also like, uh, honestly, I, I think it's it does what it needs to do, but in yeah. a very silly way. Because yeah. then, um, like, I, it made me think that, like, okay, I, I get. So the dad immediately sends her off in the only boat that they have. <laughs> mm-hmm. You gotta go. You gotta go. And you're like, where's she going? She's like right. seven. What the <laughs> fuck, dude? <laughs> like you're just sending her to Tarvalon on her own. In a canoe, like <laughs> did, did he did he say Tarvalon? I don't remember. Whether I don't think he, he says it. I just sort of assume like, that that's go. what's going on because 
she ends up in Tarvalon, and like, where else would you send someone who can channel? I guess it's just yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I guess I guess he could build a new boat. Uh, I don't I know. He only has uh, one hand though, so that might be challenging. I <laughs> it, I'm I'm guessing that uh, the neighbors that burned down his shack won't yeah, be willing to lend him help. a new boat either. Probably not going to give him a hand. Ha ha. Ho ho. Uh, hey yo. Yeah, so like, one of the things about this show is sometimes the cold opens are real good. Like when we talked about the Loghain one, that cold mm-hmm. open rules. Uh, this cold open felt very weird and like almost tacked on. Um, yeah. It, it feels, it feels like they needed to do something. Uh, yeah. And it's such a weird, like it's, it so, also feels totally unnecessary because like the character that's introduced in this scene, uh, you know, it, it's it, she's an important character, and I there's like one moment where you were knowing that she's kind of from a poor background, uh, kind of would help you understand something she says, but it's not even like a ma- it's a major thing in the episode itself, and it's also something that they communicate much better in a later scene. So, mm-hmm. well, I mean, yeah. I think I think it also suffers from the shorthand that uh, surrounds a lot of like uh, sort of super powered being type yeah. of narratives, which is, Oh, they're persecuted. It's like, motherfucker, you can burn down shit. <laughs> you are, you right. are actually dangerous to other people sometimes. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And I, I also take sort of take issue with it because um, like in the books, the area that she's from, which is in Ilion is sort of like not, cool with channelers and it is believable that like people would spread rumors and maybe burn her house down, but it, she wouldn't be like in danger for her life because they could just leave and go to Tarvalon. Like the, and, or an Aes Sedai might show up and find her like the Aes Sedai are still a pretty powerful organization, even in the parts of the world that aren't fond of them. Um, and they they come around looking for people who can channel all the time. So I, mean, that, I I feel like that would have been a really interesting, a much more interesting cold open, right? Yeah. Where it's it becomes a conflict of, uh, you know, this Aes Sedai searcher or whatever you want to call it, a recruiter or whatever, shows yeah. up at at their door, and he, you know, then Dad becomes more protective because like, who's who's going to help him fish? How yeah. is he going to survive? You know, how is he, you know, like, are you going to pay me? Right. Like, are you going to pay me once? I, I need to live for the rest of my life. You know, I got 20 <laughs> years in me at least. <laughs> or, or you could flip it around and he could be like, yeah, you should go with them because you can channel and like, you need to go learn how to do that. Uh, and she could be like, but dad, I, who's going to help you? And yeah, and, and that would, that. I think that would make her character really sympathetic in the same way they're trying to make her sympathetic where like. They're trying to communicate she was forced to leave as a child and she didn't want to and she like kind of regrets it. Um I mean it's it's also yeah. setting up it's it's a weird uh you know, it it really does set up like some lib shit, right? That <laughs> like let's face it, you know, they're they're pointing out that uh, uh spoilers, this is Swain Sanch, who is who yeah. who is now the Amerlin seat in present time. Yeah. Uh so she you know, this is exactly what we're talking about. This is like lib shit meritocracy uh, stuff where she started out poor, but see, she had the talent to yeah. become the Amerlin seat. And you're like, okay, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
Yeah, and I I think in the that's present in the books, but I think it's less um to make a point about how she was so talented and that's how, how she became Ermelin. And it's more like uh she it, it's like everybody ends up who can channel who's a woman ends up in the tower. So it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're whatever. If you can channel, the tower comes, they take you and they make you part of their system. And then like if you're powerful enough, you end up rising to the top within that system. Um, in this, it definitely does feel though, like they're trying to kind of, cause, the, cause again, like the line I talked about is when she's confronting Moraine about what happened, uh, t- during the battle with Loghain and stuff, uh, and like accuses Moraine of being like a haughty noble and looking down on her. And it, and that's dumb and kind of out of character for Sion Sanjay, who is, who has no, like defensiveness around the nobility she literally can like send a letter to a queen and the queen has to come talk to her in the in the in Tarvalon. like it just it was I, yeah it, it i didn't work it didn't work yeah. for me well i mean and and it's it's sort of established pr- prior to this that the Aes Sedai sort of are a almost a a parallel and almost superior like uh, they they not superior but in in a, a moralistic sense, just simply a a, a system of power yeah. that supersedes existing like feudal uh, bonds and whatnot. You know, whatever mm-hmm. whatever the because it, I feel like the, the the world of Wheel of Time it has it it suffers from like it's not really feudalism really, <laughs> and you're like, no, nah, come on, there's kings <laughs> and dukes and shit, come on, yeah. Um, but but in any case, uh, that that that's a that's just a side note. Uh, yeah, like, like the Amarlin seat, like you said, she can send like a letter to the king, and the king has to come in, and they might chafe at having to kneel before the Amarlin seat, but they'll do it because, yeah, um, you know. <laughs> The Aes Sedai are powerful, and you don't want to fuck with that, right? And they are the wizards, and you don't you don't want to like get on the bad side of the wizards. Yeah, (laughs) the only people in the world who are really against the Aes Sedai strongly are the White Cloaks, the Children of the Light, and they live on the opposite side of the continent. So (laughs) easy for them to uh, resist, huh? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Um. I, I did. I will say that um, I really did enjoy some of the little flashes and hints of like the internal politics yeah. in this entire uh, episode. Yeah, um, like the stuff between Moraine and Leandrin was really good. The stuff between like the leader of the blue, the blues, and Leandrin during the little trial scene was really good. Like I think that's something that this show has done really well. Is like forecast the inter Sedai conflict that will become really important later on um, in a way the first book really didn't do at all. Um, And they found ways to kind of weave it in uh, by kind of resetting stuff that happened in Camelin in the books to Tarvalon. Because something we haven't said yet is that like all this shit that's happening uh, in the books in Tarvalon or in the show in Tarvalon happened in a completely different place. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, like like in the books, if I'm remembering correctly, in, was Camelin the one where they had like the the peace bonding of the weapons and like, yeah, well, it's not peace bonding. So there was there's like a the, there's a heavy white cloak presence in Camelin, um, and there's people who support the white cloaks and tie like white uh, ribbons around their weapons, 
because every because Camelin's a big dueling city. Everybody's got their swords and like they challenge each other to duels. Um, and then all the men who support the queen, uh, the, the queen's men, as they call themselves, tie a, a red ribbon around their swords. And so there's like kind of like a nascent political conflict going on. Um, so uh, I, do, and do you th- yeah do you think that um, that Jordan was was cha- was cribbing from like uh, Dante in that uh, oh. like the the Guelphs uh, factions uh, because I, I think that I think that the the colors actually match yeah uh, I'm not entirely sure I'm not either but I wouldn't be surprised there's a I mean like one of the things about Wheel of Time is it draws from everywhere unabashedly like Arthur. Uh, King Arthur is basically a character in the mythology of the Wheel of Time world, right? Well, because he's got a, a weird name, it's not really Arthur, is it? It's no, it's, Artur it's, Hawk it's Arthur something. Pain Drag instead of Pain Arthur Drag. Pendragon, right? <laughs> Pain Drag, yeah, he's totally different. Totally different guy, not the same at all. Yeah. <laughs> it just gives you a sur- it's like like that um that Rowan Atkinson bit where he's he and he wears an eye patch and lets his <laughs> lets his followers know that he's returned via a surreptitious wink and then like yeah. he doesn't do anything it's like oh he's winking under his eye patch okay <laughs> um anyway uh yeah, yeah. so um yeah, it, it, it I, I, I was, I was a little confused about that because I do remember like that whole sequence. It, it became like a whole thing, like this weird, like factionalism happening. And like, I think it was Rand and Matt were caught in the middle of that as well. And it was like, what the fuck is happening? Yeah. Um, so like in the, in the books, I think it's, it's a little bit well developed because it's all in reaction to the Dragon Reborn and to, um, the stuff that's going on, like, well, basically Sion and Moraine have, as revealed in this episode, uh, have been sort of running a, a, a covert op, um, without anybody else in the white tower really knowing about it to try to find the dragon reborn. Right. Um, because they have a, a mentor figure who get, told them this prophecy that the dragon re- had been reborn and how to find him basically like what the signs would be. Um, and then there's also like the historic prophecies of the dragon and all this stuff. But 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 anyway, they know, knew somebody who gave a prophecy that the dragon had been reborn and then died like the person who gave the prophecy did. And so they sort of took on this task. And when it's revealed in the books that they've been doing this without anybody else knowing, um, like there's a rebellion and Siwan gets deposed and uh, all this stuff. But there's like there have been cracks between the different Ajas, the different like factions within the tower. Um, the the, like, the colors of the, the colors, yeah, of the eyes yeah. die. Oh, you could call it a color revolution in the white <laughs> tower. Um, yes. Anyway, yeah. So like the red the red Aja uh, who hunt down false dragons and men who can channel. They really don't like the blue Aja because of some political stuff that happened last well, it's time. A- yeah. It's obvious. Anyway. Red red is the opposite color of blue. Um, yes. On the color wheel. Uh, yes. <laughs> but it, but like anyway, so there's like all this stuff going on and like all the and and in the first book you don't really get a sense of it even though it becomes like really fucking important by the third book. And I like how in the show they've kind of uh put some little hints to it in here and it's like it's not at the forefront but it's there and it and it works for me that it's there, you know. 
Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense. I, I, I do think that um, it's important for them to sort of establish this sort of end run that uh, Soren Sanche and, uh, and Moraine are doing yeah. here so that when, you know, obviously they then need to like basically blow that shit up and, you know, later on you, you go, oh, see, everyone found out. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't have told anybody. Uh, but it's also revealed, uh, and, and this is something that was um, also refreshing in a different way. Uh, I think we we mentioned that um, even though it's not like it's not like explicitly sex, sexy scenes in, in the first and second episodes or whatever. Uh, here you get, you know, like something that you had mentioned and other people had mentioned that, uh, is sort of hinted at in the books, but never really, uh, put on the page. Uh, and it's that yeah. Swing Sanch and Moraine are like, they're lovers. They're, yeah. And it's they on the screen. It's, on. Yeah, it's on the screen in enough of a way for it to be sort of provocative, but also family friendly, I suppose. <laughs> yes. They they didn't go full Game of Thrones with this scene. Um, but, God. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? What a tonal <laughs> shift. Uh, but the, yeah, like I like that too, because in, in, that was always kind of like a fan theory, I guess. Uh, because Moraine and Siwan were like really close and there were certain lines that kind of indicated that they uh, they like spent a lot of time together after dark, if you know what I mean, back when they were novices. They, um, they shared pillow they talk. Sh- yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Um, but, it, and then in New Spring, which is like the prequel book, it's a little bit more kind of explicitly stated that they kind of had a romantic thing going on. Um, but it's never front and center and I like how the show is just like, nah, they did and still do have a romantic thing going on. Mm-hmm. Well, so. I, I feel like there's a hint of uh, in when um, Moraine speaks to Leandrin before, like after the first um, audience that she has before the Amerlin seat. Yeah. Uh, it, there is like this weird sort of almost sexually charged scene where Leandrin sort of like caresses her face and you're like, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then Moraine later comes back and basically threatens Leander and is like, Oh, I'll, I'll tell people about the man that you see in such and such a place. And it's like, yeah. Oh, so is Leander letting Moraine know that she knows something's up between her and that was how I Sue read it. Yeah. That yeah. I think that that's, that's the way I was reading it as well. Um, which is like, it's, it's subtle enough. That if you know, you know, if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, it looks sort of like, okay, that's yeah, what, sort what's of going on here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like that, those, both of those interactions with Leandrin really, I really liked. I really like actually the, the Leandrin actress and uh, the way they're doing the character. I can't remember her name. Kate, um, Kate Fleetwood. Yeah. Uh, like Leandrin is just supposed to be an utterly detestable uh smug horrible person and she's very good at that uh (laughs) yeah yeah she is i mean and also i think that um like kate fleetwood has like a a look about her is just very like a very uh i don't want to make this sound mean or anything like that but she's got a very severe uh facial features sharp cheekbones yeah oh my god you could cut things with those cheekbones um you know, and, and she's got like this very extreme fa- face 
that then plays perfectly into like it's sort of like a almost a shorthand for the character. And yeah. that's I guess that sounds sort of weird, like almost um I guess I don't want to sound like it's like, oh yeah, because she's, you know, because like that thing where if they're ugly, they're evil. Right. Uh, but, but I do think that they, they play it well here. And she, she does come across as a much more complex character than just being like outright, you know, like vile, <laughs> like just a horrible person. Like, honestly, I think the books do, um, uh, the books that I read at least sort mm. of do her a disservice. And I think that the show, sort of rounds her out a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. In the book, she she is very much just like uh, 100% all villain all the time. Um, and in this, I do think that like, she, especially not so much in this episode, but in the episode when they're in, in episode four, when they're like in the camp with Loghain and stuff, I think they do a good job of having her seem like a rational, if extreme position, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. uh, Whereas in the books, she was always just sort of like saying wild <laughs> stuff all the time. Um, and in and then but I, I think like what I like about her is that she comes off as very manipulative, which she is. She comes off as like constantly scheming. Um, she's like trying to kind of beat Moraine at her own game of being kind of like a spy master and knowing stuff and making allusions to things and like uh asking questions about Nynaeve and 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 things like that uh and like th that's good and i think that Kate Fleetwood does a really good job at that um and makes you just kind of like seethe a little bit in the way that she delivers those lines mm -hmm. and those scenes yeah she's really good at that too um yeah i have to admit um uh, so I guess what, what else? I mean, uh, obviously, uh, we, we met, <laughs> I, I, I could help but laugh a little bit because, um, oh yeah, Loyal they, shows up in this episode, doesn't he? Jesus Christ, man. Every time I hear his name, I just think of, of, of Christopher from, from Sopranos, uh, script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I must be, I must be loyal to my, <laughs> to my capo. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, man. Yeah, <sighs> I so I, I have I I think that they did what they could with the yeah. with the character. Um, I I do appreciate that. Uh, it, it you know basically uh, loyal is coded. I don't know if all o ogres or ogiers. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's only it's only an ogier if it comes from the <laughs> from a certain part of yeah. <laughs> if it comes from the steading. Yeah. Um, Otherwise it's just an ogre. Uh, it's just a sparkling ogre. Mm. Um I do appreciate like the makeup and everything like that, and that, you know, they they really did great, you know, like curly hair, you know, black hair basically. Yeah. Um and and Hamed uh, is I'm I'm gonna murder his name. It's Hamed. Animashon, uh, yes, something like that. I think that's does right. does yeah you know, does a great job with what he has, mm -hmm. um, but I always found the Ogiers to in in Wheel of Time to be like a weird. Like there were like it felt like Jordan was trying to re riff off of the Ents, and you're like, yeah, just just let them be like something i don't know they don't need to be oh so hasty and you're so like oh hasty. come on come on come on man <laughs> yeah it's definitely an end riff um and it's definitely it definitely becomes less of that as the series goes on 
Um, but in the first book, it definitely feels like this is just him doing his, his one of two versions of Ents, actually, that he does in the first book, one of which doesn't show up in the show at all. Um, there's the green man also who's guarding the eye of the world. Oh, that's but, right. Yeah. But uh, I, I think that like, I like the Ogier. They're kind of one of the few. Uh, they're actually like the only good non-human race or like species or whatever, like sentient species in the world other than like there's humanity. And then there's like the, all the evil stuff, like the merge all and, and whatever. <laughs> um, and so it's cool that like, there's some kind of good non-human characters. Um, I think like, like you said, Hamid Anishan does a great job uh, as loyal. His performance is spectacular. Like he really captures the sort of jolly, scholar kind of you know vibe attitude whatever you want to call it and there were there were a few moments in the episode where like he's talking and then other people like start doing something or like talking to each other and he's just in the background like just still like explaining some (laughs) random historical fact or something and it's really good like that was perfect um i i think like the makeup on loyal isn't I think some people are overreacting to it and because it doesn't it doesn't look anything like the character is supposed to look in the books. He's supposed to be like a huge sort of cat man, basically, um, with like big tufted ears. But that would look insane <laughs> on television. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, like, honestly, given uh, you know, given the budget constraints that are that we've already talked about, I don't know that they would have been able to do that. No, um, I mean, yeah, I, it's I, like the, the, the more they lean into like the and the non-human look, the harder it's going to be to do it in a way that's not just insulting and patently ridiculous. Well, and, and I mean, you know, you're going to end up making a loyal look like basically a furry that exists in the <laughs> yeah. wheel of time, which, right. you know, no, no, no big problem, but that's not the, that's not what they're trying to go for. Right. It's, no. it's something else. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I enjoyed, uh, I do, I, I do have to say that, yeah, like him, like going off on tangents in the background is like, Oh, Hey Matt, how are you doing? He's like, yeah. Oh yes. And the, the, uh, back in 548 and before the breaking <laughs> and you're like, yeah. Meanwhile, Rand and Matt are off in the corner talking about how catching up on what happened, you know, since they saw each other that morning or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is, that is really funny in a, it's sort of an understated way uh, without making it, trying to make it like a, like a explicit comedy beat. Yeah. He's like not even in the, in the frame really. Sometimes you just sort of hear his voice like rumbling along in the background. <laughs> it's very <laughs> Keeps good. On going. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let me see here because I forget. Oh, and, uh, so then it becomes like this big thing. So Moraine, uh, Moraine, you know, when she goes before the Amberlynn seat, uh, it's basically a performance that we find out later on was an entirely a performance that then when they're together and, you know, sort of Moraine opens up the, their secret, like, I guess, passageway, magical passageway. Um, and they meet up and blah, blah, blah. And they're having their pillow talk. Um, she tells her, you know, she tells Swain Sanch that 
like, look, if you, if you, you, know, you have to do what you have to do, but if you, you know, like, obviously you need to punish me for not doing something. So it looks, you know, on the up and up, but the punishment you have to meet out to me is exile. So basically, so that she can continue, you know, sort of like ranging far and wide, <laughs> continuing her mission, you know, but this time not necessarily in direct contact with the, with the white tower. Yeah. Yeah. That was really good. Um, the sort of like, I, I mean, it's one thing to kind of say, you know, Siwan and Moraine have been running this kind of like secret campaign to find the dragon reborn. And they're kind of like hiding stuff and manipulating people. And it's another thing to have them just do it right on, on screen. And I think it was mm-hmm. really smart. Like, cause, cause none of this, none of this stuff with like Moraine getting in a ton of trouble for what happens to Loghain or for spending so much time wandering around looking for the dragon reborn uh, gets it, it. None of this happens in the book. They don't have the scene with the oath rod and stuff, but I think adding it does a couple of things really well. Like it, it creates, it, it, it allows them to create the relationship between Sion and Moraine and then create like a conflict for that relationship. Uh, it allows them to show them working together, which I think was really good. And it also like, allows them to show that what Moraine and Siwan are doing is hidden and illegal. And like, they can't get, they can't be found out. They have to do this extreme thing where Moraine, you know, has to get sent into exile so that the blue sisters don't kind of rejigger their operation to keep her at home more. Cause she can't, she doesn't have a legitimate excuse to be doing what she's doing. Right. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and, and that was all really cleverly written and like, of the stuff that they added that wasn't in the books, I think this is the most this other than like the funeral stuff we just talked about in the last episode. The stuff with Moraine <laughs> and Siwan is some of the best addition in terms of like different narrative stuff happening. Yeah. I mean, and it honestly, this is weirdly something that feels like it could have happened in the books. Yeah, it totally does. It 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 feels like if they had gone to Tarvalon instead of Kaimlin, this is a scene that probably would have happened. Yeah. Um, and so, it, 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 yeah, it just works really well. Yeah, and I, I think yeah, it it like you said, it it also satisfies several different sort of plot, uh, sort of um, I, I don't want to say devices, Jesus Christ, uh, <laughs> pers- uh, <laughs> objectives, plot objectives. Plot that's objectives, what I was thinking. Yeah. Yes, there we go. Yeah. Um, see, that's the problem. I, I was trying to think of like a, a business sounding word. Fuck mm-hmm. that shit. Um, yeah, it's just. <laughs> Some goals that the the plot needed to to achieve. So that, you know, basically, this is the way that Moraine now gets to, you know, from here on out, she can gallop to the ends of the earth without having to, you know, report back to home base or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And, yep. and probably breaks free of like um, something. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a an answer or something that was talked about in the writer's room as an answer to the, like the weird 24 problem, right? Where every, every season Jack Bauer saves the world from, you know, the terrorists. And then the next season you have to reset everything again, because uh, now Jack Bauer has to convince everyone that he is actually, he's the one that knows what the secrets are. And he's like, uh, did no one, did everyone forget what happened last season? Like, <laughs> that wasn't that far, far yeah. that long ago, was, like was it? A couple of years ago, right? Like, everybody like, should remember that 
he did that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it, it lets them kind of have the continuing adventures of Moraine uh, and have her be kind of an outsider in a way that's narratively compelling and stuff. <laughs> Who was yeah. that blue, that blue dressed stranger? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah. Other stuff that happened in this episode, though, I was less enthused by. Um, like the way they did, they handled Matt and the dagger, uh, like really kind of made it underwhelming for me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, I feel like, um, to a degree, it feels like an easy fix. Yeah. Um, Cause like in the books, it takes 13 Aes Sedai and one of the most powerful, like, so they have, I don't know if they, they haven't introduced these in the show yet, but they have like the, the Angriel and Turangriel, which are like the things that make it easier to use the power. Well, I um, would I would probably say that uh, the Oathrod and oh yeah, that's right, the Oathrod is one. Was there one other that um I think uh, they have like a it's not something that's like commented upon or you know none of the characters mentioned. I think Mo- Moraine has that's like right. a weird little figurine that she takes with her. Yeah, yeah, um, and she gives it to Rand in an in another episode. Um, but yeah. she she does grab it, but they don't really explain what what those things are really. The oath yeah, it's is not, just it's not sort spelled of, out. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, so the, it it basically in the book it's thirteen Aes Sedai and one of the most powerful Turangriel they have uh, that are required to heal Matt, and it like almost kills him, and it almost kills several of the Aes Sedai involved. And it like freaks them all out, right? Um, and so they they like lock the dagger up in the tower. Um, I mean, given, I mean, I can understand. It, it, they they I think that they wrote themselves in a corner yeah. uh, regarding that, right? Because yeah. once you have to ensure that Matt and Rand are being kept like secretly somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, that you know, like. Basically, the yellow the yellow Aes Sedai are the ones that sort of have been slow, you know, like contacting Moraine as to where the whereabouts are and all that stuff. And it's yeah, once you have that and all the the intrigues, which work really well on the one hand, on the other hand, then that particular sort of plot line feels underserved, right? Like yeah, yeah, I think they could have probably. So the other thing is in in the book what happens is moraine like heals him a little bit enough to kind of keep him going and off of the brink of death but she can't separate him from the dagger by herself right and so in book one he doesn't actually get healed uh moraine is just able to kind of keep him going and then book two is when he actually gets gets the dagger Mm. separated from him and i think they could have done something like that but i'm i'm guessing that they didn't know what their long-term plans were yet exactly mm-hmm. for like getting back to the tower. <laughs> I mean, the end of this episode ends with them sort of like going, opening up the ways um, and going like opening the, the portal uh, and it ends up with Matt getting sort of locked Cold out. Cold feet. Yeah. He doesn't go. And so what I'm going to guess is the following. Okay. Um, what we saw that looks like he got healed ends up not taking a hundred percent. And they okay. can, you know, like they can probably retcon that and like he falls back or something yeah, yeah, happens, yeah. you know, and 
uh, you know, that, that will then see him show up. Like he stays outside and who knows, maybe he goes back and grabs the dagger. Who knows which, <laughs> what happens well, to him now? Yeah, this is, this is a spoiler for the last episode, but there is that shot at the very end of the show of him in what I think is Shadar Logoth again, somehow, um, or something that was very weird, but we can talk about that later, but it definitely feels like they're trying to, to have it be a, an ongoing conflict and they don't want it to be fully resolved yet. But I feel like the way that they presented it in this episode was that Moraine had fixed him. It was fine now. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it, it, it could also be a way to set up Moraine as, um, sort Fallible. of being, well, yeah, fallible. Like she has her own blind spots. Like yeah. we've already seen uh we've already seen Nynaeve uh have her own blind spots as to, you know, oh well, you know, why would anyone ever do something, you know, underhanded? <laughs> right. I'll just give them whatever and I'll try just give to help. This dude drugs, whatever. Who cares? <laughs> it's fine, right? It's yeah. like a lethal dose in here. He should be fine. He'll he'll do what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so in this case, we we've pretty much established that Moraine I don't think that she's been punished um in a like a plot way uh for being essentially, you know, she's what Swan Sanch called her out on, right? Being yeah. haughty and sort of high-handed and thinking that she knows best. Uh and in general, uh throughout this um the episodes that we've seen, she has not really been uh shown to be wrong about any of the the things that she thinks about or believes. Right. That's true. Yeah, so I think that that could be it. They could be setting up like Maureen thinks she fixed the problem but didn't and so now next season we have, you know, Matt getting worse and her needing to do something about that or 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 needing to face consequences for basically dismissing the problem too quickly or something. If if I'm not mistaken like they sadly I don't think um I don't think Barney Harris comes back yeah. for next season, right? Yeah, that was one of the other things that uh, ma- makes me very curious to know what the l- production of the last few episodes of the show was was like in detail. Because he's not coming back. They recast him before season one had even come out. Jesus. <clears throat> so, it's yeah, ne- I think next season is Donald Finn. I, yeah. I don't know if I'm mispronouncing his name, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, apparently, uh, uh, healing him, uh, really changed him. <laughs> yeah. Completely changed his facial structure somehow. We don't really know. <laughs> well, or, or, or going back to shut our look off, <laughs> changed him up. We don't know. Yeah. We don't know. Something happened though. Yeah. It's, it's the, the Adams family, uh, values, uh, changeover, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's got dimples. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I did find that I, the end, like I'd say the last five minutes of this episode sort of set the stage for oh, the yeah. next two because it's sort of like it literally and figuratively sort of gallops to the end. And you're mm-hmm. like, there's like the meeting between Egwene, Nynaeve and Suan where she's like talking to them about how you're two of the most powerful young channelers we found and like you you the future depends on you you're going to join the Aes Sedai once you get back from going on this excursion with Moraine uh and it's like okay cool and then they're just like riding across a field uh, <laughs> toward the way gate and it's just like 
real then moraine gives this speech about how like so uh we're going to the eye of the world and uh one of you will survive because they're the dragon maybe and the rest will die because they're not the dragon (laughs) (laughs) no one has any second thoughts except for matt (laughs) yeah and everyone is like oh wow that sucks okay and that sucks i guess i guess we gotta do it it. what what do you think matt (laughs) matt Where's Matt? Like, um, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm yeah. all right. <laughs> I got I got some other things to do. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sure I'm not the Dragon Reborn at this point, so I'll just uh, I'll just be on my way. <laughs> I think I left the stove on. I got to go yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, it, and it was it was very that sequence was very awkward. It very much felt like I don't think that that's what they planned from from the beginning. I think that they decided to shoot it that way because. Something had already happened that led them to to realize they were going to recast Barney Harris because mm. I can't imagine that that was that was the plan, especially since the way that it's shot is like really weird where they're all going in and like they're just going in one after another. And then Matt just sort of hesitates at the at the gateway and a couple of them turn around to go. Matt, no. And then it shuts. And then there's like this <laughs> awkward scene where they're all just like standing right inside the door talking about like. But Matt's not here. We got to go back for Matt. And Moraine's like, we can't. Sorry. Got to keep going. <laughs> You're all going to die now. Oh, yeah. minus one. Uh, one of you will survive. Matt Let's will, go. <laughs> Matt, Matt will live. And one of you. <laughs> it's just it, it's, it felt weird and awkward. And it really did, as you said, kind of set the like set the tone for the next two episodes of it just being very fast. Nothing nothing gets any real dramatic weight to it. Cause it's just going like Matt staying behind. That feels like it should be a huge thing, right? Yep. Yep. He's, he's I mean, like it, their it buddy. Should, it should. Yeah. It should be like something that, um, like Rand Perrin and Eggween are definitely like sitting there going like, yeah, um, no, you open, open this shit up again. Yeah. We gotta we go need back to, talk to our friends. <laughs> and, and Nynaeve should be like really pissed off that he stayed behind and she should want to go, you know, give him, give him a whack. Um, and talk, talk to him about how you don't abandon your friends or something. Give him a lecture, but nope. They're all just like, all right, I guess we're, well, uh, sucks to be man. See ya. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I, I, I thought that was weird. And the next episode, this episodes seven and eight felt weird in exactly the same way. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> next time. All right. Well, um, so Jeremy, uh, we, we have definitely talked a lot about these two episodes. I, I do feel like even though these two episodes, uh, well, uh, more or less, you could have watched one of the episodes instead of listen to us already yeah. <laughs> and be halfway through the other. But I do feel like these are pretty beefy, uh, you know, like they, they got a lot in them, honestly. Yeah. And th- there are some flaws. Uh, I, I did enjoy them probably more than the other episodes in the series a little bit more. Uh, and I don't know if that's simply that, you know, they, they gotten all the establishment, uh, the establishing stuff out of the way and you mm-hmm. can start, start to really get to the, the center of the sandwich, if you will. Right. Yeah. Got past all the bread and the crust and all that stuff, getting to the good stuff. It definitely um, feels like these are the episodes where they where stuff is happening. Like there's no moment in the episodes where they're just explaining something to you anymore. Yeah. Um and I think that that's part of why it feels like so much, you know, they feel so much beefier than the earlier ones and so much beefier than the last two. 
Yeah. The last two are definitely the, that, that <laughs> those last two bites that you think still have like some ham or something in them. And you find, oh, it's just the crust. Yeah. And yep. maybe a stray piece of lettuce. Um, yeah. But in any case, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I, I think that they're, I'm selling them short a little bit, but not by much. No, uh, especially so, the last episode. Just, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, I think that that suffers from the same problem that the the book had, right? In the sense yeah. that it's like, oh yeah, we won. And then or, it's over. Or did we? Wait, huh? Yeah. Well, that anyway, was it. <laughs> we, we'll talk about that next time. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> next time on Podside. Um, so Jeremy, talk to us about your own uh your own series of books. Um yeah. well, or or maybe or, the one at least. Well, there's the one that's out. So uh yeah, The Hand of the Sun King is my first novel. Uh first novel in my trilogy, the Pact and Pattern trilogy. Uh just about a young man who grows up kind of in a colonized country ends up working for the colonizers for a while because he thinks that that's the best way for him to learn how to master magic. And then uh, halfway through the book realizes that he has uh, accidentally done some atrocities and uh, reverses course pretty dramatically. Um, and I just <laughs> oh, finished- no. <laughs> the way you said that. <laughs> it's like, it's like a captain crunch. Whoops. All genocide. Whoops, all genocides. Um, yeah. I mean, it, that's, that you could put that tagline on my first book and uh, it wouldn't be totally inaccurate. Um, <laughs> the second book, I just finished copy edits on actually. So yay, I don't have to work on it anymore, but it's very good. I think it's actually better than the first one, um, which is exciting. And it's the continuing adventures of that character as he uh, does something else with his life. <laughs> I can't really say without spoiling the first book. Um, but yeah, so Hand of the Sun King is the first one. If you haven't read it yet, uh, you can get it on Amazon or, you know, bookstores can order it. You can go to an indie bookstore. They can get it for you. Um, and if you live in the UK, you can get a very nice hardback still because Glance published it there. Yeah, I I, I ended up getting the hardback. It, it's a Hell very yeah. handsome looking book, too. Yeah, dude. The cover's great. Yeah, I liked it. Um, all right. Well, um, so... Yeah, go ahead and check out the Hand of the Sun King uh, wherever good books are sold. All right. Uh, so, Jeremy, we'll have you back for the last two episodes of this season. Uh, at least uh, that'll be it for for Wheel of Time for now until you know the next two seasons come up. Yeah. Um, we're, well, and and that's where I'll tap you again for your scholarship uh, Wheel of Time. <laughs> Yes, my extensive expertise. Having extensive. Read, having read the series a total of two, well, at this point, two and like a third times, I think, total. You know, you know what? That is that is two and a third times more than I have. So <laughs> <laughs> I will defer to your wisdom, sir. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll have you back then. And um, uh, thanks for being on. Uh I do thank you for talking a little bit more about this series uh, and everyone listening in. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you next time here on Podside.